verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1 is a heavy, weighty place full of theological truths. The whole language of redemption, brothers and sisters, as the Lord, think about the Passover, the Lord is purchasing, He's buying Israel from the slavery of Egypt to be His slaves. very offensive today too. That's why nobody talks about Christians as being slaves. Suddenly we are lords. We tell Jesus what to do. We command Jesus what to do. There's no one who is free. You're all enslaved. The question is whether we are slaves of sin and Satan or of God and righteousness. That's the question. Who are you serving? Who do you serve? I invite you, please open our Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. And if you can, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Here's the Word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His words through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. We often hear the word glorious. We say that was glorious. Glory, something that's... We read in the scriptures about glorious things related to the Lord. We often say, oh, that was a glorious game. But what does it mean? What is the meaning of the word glorious? I, I mean, ti- the, the, the title of this next, maybe two sermons today and next Lord's Day is a glorious greeting. What does it mean, glorious? So, the, Mir- the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they say that one of the main definitions of glorious is something that's marked by great beauty or splendor. Something that's marked by great beauty or splendor. The Hebrew word where we have the Hebrew kavod or kavad was first used for something that was heavy, weighty. That was the idea of glory, something that's heavy, weighty, bringing a sense of honor. Similar to Greek doxa, we have something that's full of splendor and wonder. And I was thinking about how Familiarity with certain parts of the Bible. We become so familiar with, with certain aspects of the Bible that can indeed produce in us a certain blindness that veil our eyes to see the splendor, uh, splendor and great beauty of our God in certain portions of the Scriptures. Uh, I would say especially the beginning of letters. 
It's often a place that we are not looking for meat of theology. We want the meat where? Give us the book of Romans. Give us Galatians. Or give us the, the body of the letter of Titus because that's where the meat is. Well, what we're going to see here is that Paul's salutation or Paul's greeting here is a place to use the Hebrew heavy. Verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1 is a heavy, weighty place full of theological truths. So, think about words that are here in, in verses 1 through 4. Slave of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, elect of God, godliness, grace, peace. Suddenly, because of our, because of our spiritual insensibility, our lack of sensibility to our spiritual eyes, we are so familiar with these words that we don't even realize how glorious they are. What does it mean? A slave of God, an apostle. How about Jesus Christ? Godliness, the elect of God. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's capable in these first four verses here to pack a mini theology course of the whole letter. So the whole letter can be summarized in, in, in this theological paragraph that we have here. In verses 1 through 4. I like what Frank Thuman writes about Paul. He says, In Paul's letter, Pauline, Pauline letter, the opening paragraphs are not meaningless pleasantries like Dear John and Sincerely Yours, but powerful expression of the gospel and critical guides to the proper understanding of the letter as a whole. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will give us eyes to see the glory that God has placed in these verses here. So, here's the outline we're going to be following for the next two Sundays. We're going to be looking at the greeter, and that's Paul. We're going to look at his name, his identity, his calling, and then the purpose of his calling. Then we're going to be looking at the greeted one, that's whom? Who is being greeted? Titus, yes. And then we're going to look at the final greeting. Grace and peace. So that's the outline you're going to be following this Lord's Day and the next Lord's Day. Uh, I forgot how incapable. I, I thought I was going to cover verses 1 through 4 in one sermon. And I forgot my inability to cover large portions of the scripture. And actually, we are going to just be looking at Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ today. Just so you guys know where we are heading. Uh, as we come to Titus, the opening of the letter, I, I told you last Lord's Day that Paul's letters follow in, in a certain way the format of the ancient letters, the letters of the first century. And there is the, the one who is sending the letter. And it's important because that's different from how we write letters. For those of us, we still write letters. If you write a letter, you... How do you start a letter in English? Dear, and, and who do you, what is the name? The person we are sending the letter to. 
And then you end the letter with your name. Ancient letters begin with your name and who you're addressing right there. Uh, and the salutations, if you read letters from the first century, the salutations were very short, very short. I will give you an example next Lord's Day, but they were very, very brief. Uh, and you come to Paul's and, and they change. He literally transforms the salutation or the greeting into this Christ-centered greeting, this deep theological greeting. And, and he even expands the, the normal pattern. So, for example, Romans, that's, that's fascinating. Romans has the longest greeting. Romans 1, 1 through 7. That's the longest greeting of Paul. Titus, one of Paul's shortest letters, actually has the second longest greeting. And he's packing a lot of things here. And what Paul is doing is the opening of the letter is going to set the tone and introduce the, the, the main concerns that the letter will be covering. So these first four verses set the tone for the melody, the melody that the entire letter will be playing in the next chapters. So for example, just so you can see, uh, let me go back here. You have there, so for example, faith how faith is repeated throughout the, the letter. You have godliness. Even though it's just used twice, it's a massive theme. You have hope. You have eternal life. You have savior or, or salvation. You have appear or reveal. So you see these words in the first four verses, and they're going to be repeated, sung throughout this letter because they are crucial. So, the scholar, one scholar says, the salutations thus, to some extent, lays the doctrinal foundation for the practical teaching which is about to be given. So these first 46 Greek words that we have here, Paul has created under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this deep ocean where you can dive and just find beautiful theological truths here that will help us with the rest of the letter. So let us move. We need to move kind of fast here. Let's get to know the greeter. As I, as I said, familiarity can cause us to miss the beauty and the glory of certain words. So we are very used to Paul. Right? We are all used to Paul. He, his name certainly, I believe, is the most important human name apart from Christ in the history of mankind. Paul, we know that early in Acts, he's known as what? Saul. So Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Roman name, his cognomen. Remember that Paul had dual citizenship? He had Roman citizenship. And Roman citizens, they usually, usually they had three names. And Paul follows that pattern. And if you read the book of Acts, you see you have Sergius Paulus. You have people with Gentiles with two names as normal. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure you have heard people saying that, uh, do you know God changed the name of Jacob from Jacob to Israel? 
And then God changed the name of Abram to Abraham. And Sarah to Sarah. And he did the same with Paul. The problem is, you don't have any biblical evidence that the Lord changed his name. The fact that in Acts we see a change from Saul to Paul as Paul starts ministering to the Gentiles, that implies that from now on, as he's ministering to Gentiles, Greek and Latin speaking people, he is using his Gentile name, Paul. In Philippians 3, Philippians chapter 3, we have a lengthy description of Paul's outstanding pedigree. So if you want to know more about Paul, you read Philippians chapter 3. There he gives his whole pedigree as a Jewish man. And you remember that he was a Hebrew of what? Hebrews. He is an eighth dayer. His name is Saul, in honor of whom? King Saul, because they are both on the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. We don't respect Pharisees, but Pharisees were very respected. Men who studied the word, men who were conservative. As a young man in his early 20s, Paul had authority from the Jewish leadership to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul hated the Christian message. Saul regarded the proclamation of a crucified Messiah as utterly despicable, indeed blasphemous. He saw as one of the greatest blasphemies the message of a crucified Messiah. And that's what he was trying to do, to exterminate that heresy from Israel. Paul was not seeking the truth. Paul was not a seeker. He was not seeking the truth when Christ came to him. He actually believed that he was doing the truth. He, was a, he believed that he was a servant of the truth. He believed that he was serving God by persecuting Christ's church. But as Saul, Paul was hunting down the church, what happened? Who came hunting him down? The Lord Jesus. So we, we read in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus comes from nowhere, like this celestial ambush, and he conquers Paul and makes him his own slave, POW, a prisoner of war. And the picture is literally of a prisoner of war. And if you know about ancient times, when one person was conquered in war, he became what? A slave. And the picture is literally of Paul as a slave being led by the hands. So Jesus comes and conquers him. The violent kindness, the violent kindness of the Lord collided with Paul. And he was demolished that day. In Philippians 3, Paul explains what happened to him. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I have already accomplished my task, but I press on to take hold of what? For, of, of that for which, and then he explains, for which Christ Jesus what? took hold of me. And Paul is using military language of conquest. Paul is talking about the day that Jesus Christ conquered him and took hold of him on the Damascus road. Paul was fighting on behalf of the kingdom of darkness and Jesus comes with his violent mercy and conquers him. He becomes a trophy 
of cruel grace. F.F. Bruce writes the following about Paul. So remember, as you read Paul, the name Paul, keep these things in mind, because he's going to tell us that he is a pattern of all those who believe. So all of us must look at Paul and say, we were just like Paul, slaves of darkness, conquered by a violent mercy that took over us. So F.F. Bruce writes the following about Paul. Paul recalls his conversion as the occasion on which a powerful hand was laid on his shoulder, turning him right round in his tracks, and a voice that brooked no refusal spoke in his ears. You must come along, you, you must come along with me. Paul was cons- conscripted into the service of Christ, just like a slave. But never was there a more willing conscript. He says, the passion of his life from that hour on was to serve this new master and fulfill the purpose for which he had, been, he had conscripted him. Every phase of Paul's subsequent life and action, every element in his understanding and preaching of the gospel can be traced back to the revelation of Jesus Christ that was granted to him there and then on the Damascus Road. And only those, only those, because sometimes people say violent mercy, unstoppable grace, cruel kindness. That's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction. But only those who have experienced know how lovely that violent mercy was. Because we are not pursuing Christ, He came pursuing us. And suddenly that same zeal, that same determination, that same passion, enthusiasm that Paul had to persecute the church, to destroy the church, suddenly is realigned. And that same passion, zeal, now is in the direction of building the church, planting church, loving the church. And we see that in in Paul's letters to Titus. We see that same man eager, eager to serve Christ. One scholar says, The voice that we hear in this letter to Titus emanates from an apostle on the go, driving ahead with the mission, remaining thoroughly in touch with the world of his churches as much as with the truth that he preached. Balancing, balancing equally the desire to move ahead and sustain what was behind, both to plant and to nurture. That's Paul. It was Paul's conversion, that deadly collision with the risen Lord Jesus, that brought him from death to life. And that deadly collision causes Paul now to identify himself as what? A slave and apostle. So, slave and apostle, that's all we have in verse 1. Slave and apostle is a combination of titles which express both his position under divine authority and his commission with divine authority in the church. So let us first look at his identity as a slave of God. Uh, the ESV says, Paul a servant. Most English translations have servant. Paul a servant of God. 
here's the problem. The Greek word is very particular. There were at least six Greek words for servant. There were at least six words for servant. And there was only one word for slave. And guess what? Paul is using the word for slave. Dulos. If he wants to say that he was a servant, he would have used one of the words for servant. He wants to call himself a slave. The theological dictionary of the New Testament, defining the, the words related to dulos, sum dulos, dule, duleo, the verb, he says all these words have to do with slavery. In distinction from parallel groups, they, do, they denote compulsory service. Dulos stresses dependence on the Lord. And as you look at the theme of slave, the slave of the Lord, this theme runs through the whole scope of scriptures. In Genesis, we begin with Adam, and he is the first slave of the Lord. The Hebrew, Eved Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. His place, he's created by the Lord. He's placed there to take care, to serve the Lord in that place. And even though the word is never used for Adam, we know that Adam was a slave of the Lord because Israel, the nation of Israel, will recapitulate, will recapitulate Adam, will take Adam's role. And Israel as a nation is called the slave of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. But you see, in Genesis to Revelation, we have this theme of the slaves of the Lord. It's fascinating that the Bible ends with the following words. Revelation 22, 3. And there will not be any curse any longer, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And He is what? Most translations will have servants, but Duloi, his slaves will serve him. The slave of the Lord with his slaves surrounding him. Think about all the language that the Bible used for salvation. Chosen, bought, redeemed, owns. This, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what slaves were. They were sealed. There was a sealing. Marked, provided for, protected, disciplined. All these words are related to the concept of slavery. And there is a massive difference between a slave and a servant, right? Isn't there a massive difference between a slave and a servant? What is the difference between a slave and a servant? <laughs> a slave, you belong to someone, you have no freedom. Every slave is a servant, but not every servant is a slave. Slaves were considered to be chattel, that is, property to be bought. They were mere instruments of their masters, on whom they were dependent, to whom they were expected to render total obedience, under whose total authority they served, and to whose household they belonged. That's the idea of slavery. That's what Paul is using here. And that's what he used for other Christians. We belong completely to God. Fully His. Totally His. 
Ah, no, you're going to use the word slavery. That's embarrassing. There are just so many memories that bring with the word slavery. Uh, Murray Harris, he has this wonderful book. Murray Harris, Slave of Christ. He writes the following. He says, at the heart of slavery. And I, I have heard people say, oh, because the slavery in ancient times was very different from the slavery of Africans that we had in recently past. Mm -mm. He says, at the heart of slavery, ancient or, more or modern, are the ideas of total dependence, the forfeiture of autonomy, and the sense of belonging wholly to another. The slave knew that if he refused to obey his master, he would suffer dire consequences. Whereas in many parts of the English-speaking world, slavery is part of our history, in the Mediterranean lands of the first century, as Paul is writing this letter, slavery was part of their life. It says, if the language of slavery is offensive, the, of the offense would have been considerably greater for those who lived in societies where slavery was intrinsic than for us, for whom slavery is simply an unpleasant and embarrassing memory. Slavery was real and a cruel thing in those days. And Paul and the Lord wants them to use the metaphor for the Christian life. You think about, as I said, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. You think about the Old Testament where you have the, the servants of the Lord, the Eved, that could be translated as slaves of the Lord. Moses is called the servant, Eved, the slave of the Lord. Joshua, David some of the prophets. And then some, some scholars are going to argue that because Paul is using, Mo, he's using this title, he's actually not using a title of humility and submission, but a title of authority. They say, you see, Paul is just getting in line with Moses, David, Joshua, and the other great heroes of the Old Testament who are called servants of Yahweh. The problem with that is, as you think about why we're, Moses, Joshua, David, some of the prophets called servants of the Lord, slaves of the Lord. Because they depended completely on the Lord. Not because of their power. They were called servants or slaves of the Lord because they had complete dependence on the Lord. Besides that, you think about Moses, Joshua, David. These men, they are representing the nation. And the nation was supposed to be a nation of slaves of Yahweh. The Lord bought Israel out of Egypt and He buys Israel to be a slave nation. His slaves. Showing forth His light. The whole language of redemption, brothers and sisters, as the Lord, think about the Passover, the Lord is purchasing, He's buying Israel from the slavery of Egypt to be his slaves. And then we remember that Israel, just like Adam, they fail in being a faithful slave of the Lord, right? Israel, just like Adam, they fail in being perfectly obedient to the Lord. So what happens? There is a promise in the Old Testament of one who is to come, and he will be called... The servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53 calls him the suffering servant. 
And that's the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ will come as a slave to fulfill what Adam failed and what Israel failed and all the other leaders who were supposed to be the faithful slaves of the Lord fail in accomplishing. So the Lord Jesus says that whoever would be first among you must be the doulos of all, the slave of all. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to be the slave of the Lord, to accomplish the will of the Father in a perfect way. Paul, it's amazing what he says in Philippians 2, talking about Jesus. He says to the church, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking what? Morphin the form of a slave, and then dying as a slave because slaves were crucified. And as Jesus comes in the form of a slave, he's showing that the nature of God is not one to grasp or get selfishly, but is a nature to give, to serve, to love. And all those who are in union with Christ Jesus must have a slave-shaped heart. So, Paul calls himself a slave of God, Titus 1.1. It's interesting because Paul usually uses slave of Jesus Christ. I, I think that's the only time that Paul actually uses slave of God for himself. Why is Paul using slave of God here? And I think the background is important. Remember that Crete is a Greek island. Greeks. Greek culture hated the idea of being a slave. Besides that, what is the main deity? What is the main god worshiping Crete? Zeus. And you were never a slave of Zeus. Zeus was your father, your lover, not your lord and master. Ringstorff, he says, and I think he brings light here, he says, Greeks have a strong sense of freedom. Personal dignity consists of freedom. There is thus a violent aversion to bondage, slavery. Service may be rendered to the state, but by free choice. Slavery is scorned and rejected. Those who are not wise are slaves, no matter what the form of their bondage. And then he quotes the famous Greek philosophers who were all endorsing these ideas. So that's culturally. How about religiously? He says, Greek religion, in Greek religion, the relationship to the gods in general, a, familiar, a family relationship in which Zeus is father of both gods and humans. Kneeling, what a slave does, is no part of a religious ceremonial for Greeks. The worshiper is philos rather than doulos. So that it makes no sense to describe service of the gods or life under the eyes of the gods as duleia, as slavery. Huh. What Paul is doing here right in the beginning, he's confronting their societal, their cultural, and their religious background with the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. He's colliding. I know that that's what you grew up listening, that's what you grew up hearing, but let me tell you the gospel is completely contrary to these ideas. 
Christianity emphasizes our slavery to the true God. We belong completely, fully, and totally to the one who created and redeemed us. So it was offensive. That would be very offensive to read this letter to churches in the first century. Where Paul is calling himself a slave and calling Christians slaves. That was very offensive. And it's very offensive today too. That's why nobody talks about Christians as being slaves. Suddenly we are lords. We tell Jesus what you do. We command Jesus what you do. So perverted where we got. And the gospel is offensive to the carnal mind. The gospel declares a change of his slave masters from Satan to Christ, from sin to holiness. That's what the gospel is. Because we are always slaves by nature. Nobody's born free. Don't you, don't you get tired of hearing the free will, the free will, the free will? Your will is not free. Sin has contaminated the will of man. Nobody's born free. If you were free, you could save yourself. And then you get to heaven and you don't give glory to God, you give glory to yourself. There is no one who is free. You're all enslaved. The question is whether we are slaves of sin and Satan or of God and righteousness. That's the question. Who are you serving? Who do you serve? Remember what I said that these, three ver- these first four verses will help us with the rest of the book. Turn with me to Titus 3. Titus 3. Look at Paul says in verse 3. And he puts everyone, even himself included, as with Gentiles. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, what? Slaves to various passions and pleasures. This is a description of humanity outside Jesus Christ. Everybody is slaved to different pleasures, different masters that we want to rule over us. No matter how much you'd like to think otherwise, your every plan and your every action is driven by a desire to avoid pain or achieve gain by pleasing or replacing some Lord in your life. You may be enslaved by other people's opinions, terrified at the prospect of rejection, ridicule, or, per- or perhaps you're haunted by the specter of life alone. You're a slave, as Hebrew says, slaves of the fear of death. But something happens to Christians. We were slaves to all sorts of passions. All sorts of sinful things that controlled our lives. And suddenly we are no longer slaves of those things. Why? Turn with me to chapter 2. Remember I said that that will help us. Now turn with me to chapter 2 of Titus. Here's what happened. Verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God... Has appeared and has appeared in human form. 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And look at that. Who gave himself for us to do what? Redemption is related to what? Releasing, buying a slave from the market. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul is a living proof and all of us were saved here that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. And there is no greater master and Lord than Jesus Christ. I love what Dennis Johnson says. He writes, he says, You also have to face the fact that every master other than Jesus will exploit and disappoint you in the end. Every master other than Jesus will use you and then discard you. When we, we realize that we all serve one master or another, or another and that other masters inevitably abuse and fail us, suddenly we find that there is nothing as liberating as being a slave of King Jesus. The church father Chrysostom commented, one who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave in any other realm. Therefore, Paul wants those Christians in Crete to see with a different set of eyes what it means to be a slave of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's a weighty and honorable thing to be a slave of God. They belong to God, not to Crete. They have been redeemed by Jesus, by the blood of Christ, and now their lives must resemble that submission and love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Besides that, Paul is about to give some very hard instructions for this church. Paul is going to address the young men, the young women, the older men, the older women. He's going to address problems in the church. He's going to give some strong orders to avoid certain people. And they need to know that's coming just from a slave. And this slave is just giving orders from his master. And for us as a church... We must remember that we are slaves too. If somebody could look at your life, if somebody, if, if somebody had the, 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 the ability to look at your phone, your computer, your TV, to record your day, to see your words, your thoughts, and your actions, would they be able to see you as a slave of God? That's who we are, brothers. If you are bought by the blood of Christ, you are His slave. You belong wholly to Him. Let's move on. The calling. We saw the identity. Let's look at the calling of Paul. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we hear the word apostle. Something that we use here a lot about apostle. But what is apostle? What does it mean to be an apostle? In some Pentecostal and charismatic circles, we hear of people being called apostles so-and-so. So we have many apostles nowadays. Or we have people with the gift of being an apostle. 
At least that's what we hear. Uh, and if you think about the Roman Catholic Church, where there is the apostolic succession, where the Pope is taking just the place, basically, of the apostles. Or we have heard uh, of the new apostolic reformation claims, where, think about uh, Bethel in Redding, California, where you have apostles, Peter Wagner, and all this new wave of people who claim themselves to be apostles. So are those apostles, are there apostles today? Of course, there are people who claim to be apostles, but biblically speaking, you'd say no. And of course, we need to be careful, especially with the Greek language. The Greek word apostolos broadly refers to a messenger, a delegate, or one that's sent. So in, in classical Greek, apostolos referred to a person of merit sent as an envoy on behalf of a master. So basically, the word apostolos could be referred to one who is sent. He's sent with the authority of the one who is sending him. And if you go throughout the New Testament, you're going to see that there are men and women who are called apostles. Or they are referred as in a sent ones. But you've got to remember that it's referring just to one being sent. And not, so you need to make a distinction. Similar to deacon. So you have people who are called servants with the Greek diakonos. And then you have the men who, off, who, who fulfill an office of a deacon, diakonos. So you need to be careful. You need to be a, a, a careful with the context. Are we referring here in a general sense or are we referring to a specific sense of the word? David Powell, he writes the following. He says, when, he says while an apostle, apostolos, can merely be a, a messenger, in latter openings and elsewhere when Paul refers to himself, this word functions as a title that points to his special position in the plan of God. That's very important. You keep in mind, okay, as we talk about apostles with capital A, we would use capital A in our English to differentiate. These are the real apostles. Remember, you had 12. One is out of the game. They need to get another one. As to fulfill this new uh, typologic form of Israel, it's the 12 tribes, so they need another one. In Ephesians 2.20, it's fascinating that Paul says that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and what else? The apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church. Meaning it's done. You don't keep laying foundation upon foundation. It's right there. In Acts 1, we have the qualifications for one to take the position of an apostle. And we read that an apostle had to have been taught directly by Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. He had to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And he had to be chosen for the office by the Lord himself. And it's fascinating as you read the New Testament in Paul's letter... He makes sure, he makes sure that we understand that he fulfills those qualifications. So Galatians 1, Acts 9, Acts 9, 15, Galatians 2, Paul is laboring hard to show how he fulfills the qualifications to be an apostle. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that it seemed that he was born at the wrong time, right? Remember when he says that, as an apostle was... It felt like I was born at the wrong time. 
I should have been born with the other apostles. I should have been with the other ones. But actually I was persecuting the church. And there was another measure of grace in my life for the Lord to conquer me and bring me to be one of the apostles. Paul classifies his apostolic ministry. Here's how he defines what it means to be an apostle. First, you must be directly appointed by Jesus and empowered and authorized by Jesus. You need to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection or the resurrected Christ. Paul says that to be an apostle meant that they were the foundation stone of the church along with the prophets. It meant that they were first in leadership and authority in the church along with the other apostles. And for Paul meant to be responsible under God for the Gentiles. So as we think about these qualifications, we see that there is nobody nowadays to fulfill that. That's, w- that's why there cannot be apostles today. We don't need apostles today. Ephesians 2.20 And the Lord Jesus has placed as the foundation, Himself as the cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets, meaning we don't need a new foundation. Unless you say we need new revelation. Then we need new apostles. Unless we say we need a new foundation in the church because Jesus in the New Testament is not enough. Then you need apostles. That would be weird. You lay the foundation. We see Jesus is the cornerstone. And then said, well, oh, actually needed a new foundation here. Oh, that wasn't enough. Paul, Peter, John, those guys, they're okay. We need, we, we need new. Peter Wagner now. Here we go. That, that makes no sense. Like a slave, an apostle represents not himself, but the one who enlists him. So, as I think about Paul, Paul prior to his salvation, Paul post-salvation. Prior to his salvation, he was a man sent with authority. He was an apostle of the Jewish leadership. Think about that. Even though we don't have the word, we know that Paul was sent by the Jewish leaders with authority to do what? Persecute the church. After his conversion, now he's sent by Jesus Christ with the authority to do what? Plant and build the church. There's a great reversal. In Acts 9, verse 1 through 2, we read, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for what? Huh. Letters. Letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then they say, And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Prior his salvation, he has authority in the form of letters to persecute the church. After his salvation, he has authority in form of letters to do what? To build the church. That's the great reversal. That's what the gospel does. Uh, Marshall and Toner, they, they write the following just to summarize Paul's apostolic office, 
They say, for Paul, the term apostle, apostolos, expressed his calling, given at a, at a, an appearance to, to him of the risen Christ, to be a missionary, a calling which carried with it the authority to be an agent of divine revelation and to exercise a position of leadership over the congregations which he founded. An apostle is thus an authoritative, authoritative witness and preacher of the gospel. How often we hear the word apostle and we have no idea what it means. And hear what means when we read Paul as he opens his letters claiming to be an apostle. He's setting forth the authority that he has that actually doesn't belong to him but to Christ Jesus. Here's why you have to listen to me. Because I'm speaking on behalf of the king. And that's why even personal and private letters like to Timothy and Titus is actually for the whole church. Because it's given by the king to the whole body. One other aspect that a lot of these new apostles that we hear nowadays forget and they reject is the inseparable relationship between apostolic calling and suffering. Go tell that to the new apostles today. That you must suffer to be an apostle. For Paul to be called an apostle of Christ was not a term of exaltation. He makes it clear that the apostolic calling and task was nothing to be sought. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 9 through 13. And here he gives the summary of the blessing of being an apostle. It says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. And then he goes on just to tell about all the sufferings and persecutions that as an apostle he had to go through. So Robert Yarbrough, he says, to be an apostle was to be humiliated and often harm above the norm. It was also in nearly all cases an eventual death sentence. That's what to be an apostle. Tell the people you know that claim to be apostles, bring that to them. Is that, is that true? No, they don't like that. And Paul is an apostle of whom? He belongs to Jesus Christ. Christ, the Messiah, the long-expected fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes. And that's who is governing, controlling Paul. So, let me ask you, as we are about to wrap up here. We know that there are, new, there, there are no new apostles today. What does it mean for us? How does that apply for us in Salem after 2,000 years that Paul is an apostle? What is the application? How can we apply that to our lives? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I would remind you what we read earlier, the Nicene Creed, when you say we believe in one holy Catholic and what? Apostolic church. And I'm not referring here to the apostolic Christian church that came from the Anabaptist 
And I'm not talking about apostolic churches that come from the Pentecostal movement. The early church fathers, when they spoke about the, the church being Catholic, they spoke about the universality of the church. It's everywhere, the church of Christ. And when they talk about the, the apostolic church, they meant the faithful, true church that are built upon the teaching of the apostles with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. When we say that the Christian church must be an apostolic church, we are declaring that the church ought to be in continuity with the faith and practice of the first apostles who were chosen by Jesus Christ and revealed to us in the New Testament. To be an apostolic church means that we are on the foundation of the New Testament and we are not departing, we are not adding, we are not removing, we are standing firm there. We don't need new revelations. We need the ancient paths. We need the New Testament. Also, as we saw, to be an apostle was to be sent. And though there is no apostles today, the church carries this apostolic commission to go, to be sent with the authority of Christ, to be ambassadors to this world. And finally, to be apostolic means that we embrace suffering, just as the apostles suffered. And Christ suffered. An apostolic church understands the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. Amen? So, Paul tells us that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful combination. If slavery means obligation, apostleship means authority, but both mean responsibility under Jesus Christ. We see as a slave and an apostle, all that he does, all that he says is controlled and governed by Jesus Christ. And that must be your life and our lives. All that we do as slaves and all that we say, writing, speaking, texting, Facebooking, we need to remember that must be under the authority of Jesus Christ. So as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's Supper, it's beautiful how the Lord's Supper has these two aspects of slavery and the apostolic nature of the church. Think about when you read the Gospels, we have the account of Jesus as a narrative that he's establishing the Lord's Supper. It's Paul who turns that into a commission to the whole church. He gets the narrative and makes that under Christ's authority and inspiration becomes an apostolic command, even how to celebrate. Because remember that Jesus doesn't give us all the guidelines, but Paul gives us a lot of guidelines. So even the celebration of the Lord's Supper is an aspect of being an apostolic church. And even the way we celebrate, we are trying to be faithful to the apostolic teaching. So, we are not trying to create something here when you come to the Lord's Supper. No, we just want to stay in the flow of what the apostles taught us. Amen? And how about slavery? How does slavery connect to the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of what great event under the Old Testament? Passover. Passover. What is the Passover? Celebration. The Lord what? 
redeeming Israel. What is redemption? Buying them from the slavery of Egypt to be his servants. Ah, now as we move to the New Testament, we have this much more glorious fulfillment where Jesus, by his blood, he's buying us from the slavery of sin and Satan to become his slaves. And that's what we celebrate as we partake of the Lord's Supper. There's this marvelous aspect of celebrating redemption. That is, a new master and Lord, slaves of Christ. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we prepare ourselves to come to His table. Because He's not only our Lord and Master, but He's so kind. He embraces us and adopts us as children. And Father, we, as we prepare ourselves to come to Your table, be far from us to ever forget that we are Your slaves. Contrary to the masters and lords who would never invite slaves to the table, You are so gracious and merciful that you prepare a place for us. You commend us. You not only invite, you commend us to come and sit with you. And I pray, Lord, that we'd we'd partake of the Lord's Supper with thankful hearts. Help us to be mindful from the slavery that we were taken from, from where you bought us, And where we are now. And how beautiful it is to be slaves of the triune God. The only God who cares and loves, supplies, nourishes. So thank you. Thank you for changing our uh, uh, allegiance. Thank you for buying us through the blood of Christ. Be glorified, Lord. In your name we pray.